Pressing first, Rich. How are you? Good. Very good to hear. Yeah. So before we get into the uh, records, mm -hmm. I'd like to jump back a little bit. Okay. Do you remember the first time you really fell in love with a musical artist? Um, I mean, I, you know, I remember the first, when I was, I mean, maybe four. Okay. My dad was, would play like Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young, Deja Vu, and okay. Carry On in particular. And I, and I just remember that, that sound. We had an old like console, mm. you know, record player, you know, it was kind of built in. And my dad would listen to this music and it was just, it's kind of been with us our whole lives, you know what I mean? So it was, it was almost like from the moment we were out of the womb, we were just listening to, you know, he loved Joe Cocker and Crosby, Stills and Nash, Bob Dylan, and, you know, Mose Allison to, you know, anyone in between, you know, he really, but he had a real strong passion for music being, and he was a musician. Right. So he would play as well, you know, so, but I think like, as far as relating to an artist, I mean, there was just moments in my life where it would kind of come up. I mean, mm. I remember being a teenager, well, not a teenager, like maybe 12, I guess, and just listening to, you know, Sgt. Pepper, okay. that one of the records that Dad had, and there was a song on there. Uh, I mean, it was, um, oh man, what was it? Like, uh, Lovely Rita. Mm. And there was something about the sound of that that just kind of I had this really strong connection with. And I used to obsess over it. Okay. But I still do that. I'll obsess on a song for about a week or two, and then it just, then it's in, and then I can move on, you know. So. Is it with your own songs now, or with, still with other people's uh, music? Obsessing on songs? Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, sometimes it can be, you know. But sometimes it's more like, to flush it out, you know, okay. so while we were recording this record, there were songs that I would take home and I would, it was almost like a puzzle. So went, and, you know, some of them were done and it was cool and then other ones I had to, you know, I would listen to it and I'm just like, I don't like that verse, I gotta rewrite the verse or I have to do this. And, but with, with something external, because I didn't write it, hmm. it's almost like I'm trying to figure it out, you know, or trying to put that puzzle together. And so that was kind of the first, the Beatles thing was like the first when I was sort of old enough and conscious enough to start creating your own thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we started as we got older. I mean, I was younger than 12, I would say maybe like 10 or nine. But um, as we got older, you know, taste change and I was way into ACDC and I remember we bought, my brother would kind of get the records and bring them home and because he was a, he would go out and search for them. Hmm. And I feel like he would be the guy who would be the, he would go out and scout for music, but whatever I connected with, I would obsess over and learn every instrument, everything that was going on. And so, you know, If You Want Blood, you got it, that live record. And, and just being a young boy, you know, seeing that Angus hmm. running around and he had the SG stabbed through him. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And it was fast and aggressive and, pretty immediate, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was also brilliant and bluesy, you know, it had sort of everything. So I was I was really connected to that. But, you know, the the musical sort of arc or path that we took was pretty varied. We started here listening to Prince and okay. you know, listening we loved Prince and 
Sly and the Family Stone was one of our favorites. Then we kind of went punk rock and got into certain bands like the Dead Kennedys and, you know, the Black Flag was big back then. And, you know, X, this band out of California, that was one of our favorites, The Clash. And then that kind of took us into this more alternative zone, you know, where for the first time there was a band from the South that, that made records that we could relate to that wasn't like sort of Skinner. We didn't really relate to Skinner, but like R.E.M. Mm. You know, there was something about that at, at the time that spoke to us, and it was very Southern, actually, but it was Southern in a way that we could resonate with. Mm. And then that kind of took us back to sort of our past, you know. Right. I mean, because R.E.M. were into the birds, and they were into the big star, and they were into, you know, I mean, I saw R.E.M. do a, an Aerosmith song, you know, but right. then they would do this sitting in the back of the car, this big star song, and then I, you know, and then there was a whole scene in L.A. and in North Carolina and Athens where they were start playing these things. So, you know, historically throughout that path, there was a lot of stuff that I would attach to, and it varied greatly, mm. you know. And... With, with most of the names you mentioned now, they've been great songwriters. So yeah. w when did songwriting become important for you? Right away, you know. Like, I didn't, get, I didn't start playing guitar until I was 15, and, um, which was late, I think. You know, some people start. I think Mark Ford started when he was like seven, okay. you know. And um, so, I, and, and I started off, and, you know, we weren't very good. No one starts off really good, actually, but... Uh, first thing we did was write songs, you know. Mm -hmm. We weren't really good enough to cover songs. Okay. So it's just like, well, you know, let's just go down this road and write these songs. And that's really where it came from, you know. And uh, I believe the, uh, She Talks to Angels, is that one of the first ones you wrote? For the record. I mean, I was 17. Okay. But, um, or, yeah, 17. Um, but that was what we had written for, we started writing for Shake Your Moneymaker okay. at that time, and so... Uh, that's where it came from. What did you get out of songwriting, especially that early on? It's almost like the like that puzzle, you know what I mean? Like just putting together pieces. It, you know, music meant so much to me as a kid, and there was a feeling that was attached to every song that we liked and and that we could relate to, you know. And so, if I could write a song like that that someone could relate to, or even I could relate to. My, one of my own things, you know, that was really what it was. Mm. Um, it was just, you know, this sort of form of creation that was really, that appealed to me and that I felt a, a strong connection with. And I believe uh, these days you also paint, so, so is yeah. that, that creative outlet, has that always been there that you needed certain avenues? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, um, there was like my dad and my brother were big talkers. They never stopped talking. And uh, my mom, you know, everyone. And so there was all these different elements. And so I'm, I was always a little more quiet and introspective. And so being able to have an outlet to communicate when I, things that I couldn't necessarily communicate with words mm. was important, you know. And it was something I was just automatically kind of drawn to right. when I was a kid. And then you mentioned all these, these uh, names that inspired you. And then all of a sudden, first album, great success. Yeah. They kind of catapulted into that world. What was that like, especially being still young and, and kind of finding your own way? I mean, you know, you're riding, it's like riding a wave, you know. You just kind of 
doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when we were kids, I mean, I was 15 years old and like, we loved REM. I mean, it was like, that was our favorite, you know, it was like, that was it. And we played in Athens, Georgia, and uh, they were all living up there. And a friend of ours, I guess she maybe knew those guys. We were playing in this sh sort of shitty club. It was like, a, maybe it was a restaurant, I don't even know, but it, we were doing sound check and Pete Buck walked in <laughs> and he came to see us. And you know, it was just like, you know, and back then, They'd probably only sold about 40,000 records. No one knew, but, they, but to us, it was like, could have been Keith Richards, you know what I mean? It was like, huh. and you know, he was, you know, he was like, yeah, that was good, it was all right, you know? But he, I mean, we were just totally trying to rip off R.E.M. I mean, he knew what was going on, but it was really cool. But it was, I was you know, I was like, why, why is this dude in here watching us? I mean, it was interesting, you know what I mean? But I've had that, a bunch, you know, mm, sure. at the end of Shake Your Money Maker, we're opening for ACDC. And, and I found out later that Malcolm loved our band and wanted us on the tour. And we would sit there and watch those guys. And I'm like, and I was, by then I was 21. You know, I was still, still young. And I was like, I mean, I could draw a direct correlation, you know, without much of a stretch to like being that kid loving ACDC. And all of a sudden, you know, they came to see us at the Paradiso. Right. You know, on one of the days off, we were touring with Monsters of Rock, and we played the Paradiso, and Malcolm and Angus came down, and Brian, and we are just like, the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Like, it was amazing. <laughs> and so it was kind of surreal, and, and, but there's been a lot of those moments. So, right. like, when we opened for the Stones, I mean, you know, Chris and I were allowed to stand behind Keith's amps. And they're like, no one stands back here, but you guys can stand back here. So we were standing behind Keith's amps every night. And, you know, it's one of the few times Chris and I got along, you know, because we were happy about, you know, and Charlie's <laughs> sitting right there and he's just looking over at us. And, you know, all around the drums are Keith, Mick, and Ronnie Wood and mm. Charlie. And, we're, and, you know, it's, it's amazing and right. it's far out. And we were like, fuck, you know. But you, you touch upon something quite interesting because uh, everything is going well. You're meeting your, your musical heroes, but the amount of pressure or stress, I, I don't know what the right word is, that, that it puts on people, puts on a band. What was that like dealing with it? Because over the years, obviously, there's, there's been uh, some, some ups and downs. So, so how does that uh, yeah, influence the creativity, the dynamics in the band, so that, that everything is moving so fast? And, you know, I mean, we were, um, the pressure, we, we never took it as pressure, you know what I mean? Because we never were trying to maintain some sort of level of success. It, you know, it just kind of happened. And the way I, I look at it, it's like, when we made Shake Your Money Maker, no one gave a shit. So they left us alone to make the record we wanted. And then that sold so many albums by the time we made Southern Harmony, no one could tell us what to do mm. because we were too successful to let anyone tell us. And we always had from day one a pretty, you know, a, a strong stubbornness. We were too stubborn to, to let anyone tell us kind of what to do, you know. Mm. And, you know, for us it was like, yeah, okay, cool, you're, you're Geffen, you're Sony, you have 1,500 bands, we have this band. Mm. 
So I don't really give a shit about your other bands or how you do things. This is how we do things. And we were able to, you know, I mean, that's pretty, it's a pretty uh, bold yeah. statement when you're sure. in your 20s, you know. But we really be believe that and still do to this day, you know. Like, just because you guys do your thing doesn't mean that's right for us. And um, so we were fortunate in the sense that when it came to creation, it was no one came around, no one did this. So we wrote the songs we wanted to write. We never tried to look back and tried to rewrite. I mean, we probably would have been a lot more successful if we did, if we, but it wouldn't have been sincere. We wouldn't have been the band we were. Right. You know? Well, if, if we look towards uh, the record now with Magpie Salute, um, I think the first uh, song, Mary the uh, Gypsy, kind of delves into this, this uh, topic yeah. of, of, kind of commercialization of music and, and perhaps. Uh, so, yeah. so how have you seen that de development over the last two, three decades? Um, you know, it's, it's been sad, you know, like you can, I saw it kind of ramp up. I mean, the minute that we switched labels, you know, we were on, we were on Deaf American, it was a small label. You know, we were the, by far the biggest band on that label. And our boundaries were pretty well established. You know what I mean? Like, you just don't, don't come around, here's the record, do what you do, you know, figure it out, that kind of shit. So when we, you know, when we um, switched to Columbia, and, which was part of Sony at the time, I saw the whole infrastructure. And it was just all these Hutzes, you know, these guys that could have worked at IBM, you know, they could have worked at Coca-Cola, but somehow, and just the ego and the hubris, I mean, you know, we're, we were always brought up to think like, oh, rock guys, they're just these ego fucking assholes and they, they're a problem and blah, blah, blah. And I remember going to meetings at, at, Sony, at the Sony building in New York and these little bands are like out there waving for cabs, but these fucking executives had cars circling the the building for them 24 hours a day and these guys are flying on private jets and the bands are struggling to get in a fucking van and drive and i'm like man fuck you people you know what i mean like the only reason this building exists is because of those small bands that are on the ground those guys are, are, are you're you're you know ripping these people off and it's always been the way but it's it's kind of ramped up and it was this really crazy corporate culture that I saw. And then, you know, it, it, when those type of people are telling you the type of music you need to write, you know what I mean? Sure. Then things turn to shit. Mm. So, you know, the amount of time, and it, it's almost like a relationship, you know, if you, if you get into a relationship thinking that you can change the person that you're getting into the relationship with, the relationship's not going to work. Right. So these fucking dudes would sign these bands and then immediately make them change who they were. Well, why did you sign them in the first place? Mm. And then by changing them who they were or telling them how to write these songs, the band would lose their identity and then it became really kind of insincere. And so then you have a whole mess of these elements of how people started writing music and songs for the sake of money mm. and commerce instead of for the sake of art and expression. And there's been, it seems like a concerted effort in the world uh, through, you know, through corporate sort of structure, especially in America. I mean, I don't know how it is over here, but that these people are kind of around trying to, you know, no, don't, 
they've, you know, people are stupid, just dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb, you know. Well, it's like, well, if people are stupid, then why did the Beatles sell so many records? Because those were pretty far out records. Right. You know, they took a huge portion of their audience and went somewhere. Or why did Bob Dylan sell so many records? He's not, sing he's not singing about Pop-Tarts or toaster ovens. You know what I mean? And, and you can kind of go down the line and you look at these, these artists. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the contribution they made to the world. You know what I mean? Like, well, so is that whenever you start writing a song or start on a project, it could have been a Black Rose album, a solo album, or, or this Magpie Sleuth album. Um, but do you think about that? Well, what will this contribute kind of to the... Well, yeah. I mean, I think that anything that's sincerity that kind of talks about the... the um, talks about the human condition and like, you know, and, and just looking at the world. It's observation. It's just looking at the world, seeing what's going on. It's just taking yourself out of it a little bit and saying, okay, well, what's happening? So like Mary the Gypsy, you know, mm -hmm. in particular, there's a, there's, an, there's a, what I call corporate chipper. You know, people, a lot of people who work for corporations, <laughs> like, hey, you know, everything's great. And it's, it's, and that's cool sometimes, but that's not human. You know, humans can feel bad sometimes. And sometimes through that you reflect and through that reflection you can look up and be like, I learned something invaluable about myself and about my world. And then also you can, that gives you a perspective to see the highs better, you know, to sort of enjoy the joy, hmm. to, to, to experience these positives. And so a song like Mary the, Gyp you know, Mary the Gypsy sort of talks about these characters. There was this guy in, in England who's this, like a local, everyone knows him. He rides around on this crazy bike and he's just, you know, he's incredibly flamboyant and someone had told me about him and I was like, you know, looked at that as a symbol, you know. Like, we've gently been pushed to believe that somehow everyone's free to make their own decisions and maybe you can make your own decisions in, in like a fashion sense but we're more categorized and, and seemingly more conformed now than we have been since the mm -hmm. 50s. So it, it's, it's this kind of weird right. paradox that's happening, right. you know. So with that element, I thought it was an interesting concept to have this guy ride, that rides this bike that to just ride in the middle of all this shit with his scepter just kicking ass and, and, and looking at it in a different way and to kind of stamp out this you know, this overarching mentality of, of uh, you know, of just money, mm. you know? I mean, look, everyone needs money to live. Sure. Everyone needs money to, you know, you can't put on a show without money. You can't, in New York, you can't, if you walk in the street, it costs you five bucks. You know what I mean? Like, you right. can't do any damn thing right. without money in the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that should dictate everything in the world. And that, especially when it comes to creation, and I think any sort of creative element should be a lot, we should be given more respect. And I think the people that create need to have that response. It's a responsibility to create. I mean, I say this, I believe this and say it all the time, you know, like if you're a filmmaker, there's something, you know, there's something a little more important other than just escapism. Mm. You know, yes, superhero movies are cool, whatever, you know, if people like watching that. But there's more to life than that, you know. Right. So you look at, 
you look at the great movies, the movies that are going to be looked at 20 years from now, and it could be something like There Will Be Blood, you know, Paul right. Thomas Anderson, or even Apocalypse Now, or The Godfathers, or, I mean, you know, both one and two, or, you know, some of these movies that, that where the writing was brilliant, it was this human sort of thing, and ultimately, architects to movie, you know, sort of mm -hmm. filmmakers to authors to painters, I mean, you got to think about what you're doing and how that's going to last, you know. Right, the kind of the timeless element in uh, trying to find well, the timeless element. If you build a building, it's going to be around a while, so maybe have a little <laughs> bit of a fucking clue about that. You know what Fair I mean? Enough. Like, Fair enough. So, well, another song uh, we could go into, but maybe we should go into kind of how the, how the, the Magpie Salute kind of um, started a, a little bit, because you're playing with people from your own solo band, but also people from uh, Black Hole, like Mark. Yep. Um, getting those people together, for instance with Mark, we, we, uh, what was that like? What was kind of trying to reconnect with him like? Well, you know, we, Mark and I, I mean, I was, you know, as I tour and get older and sort of think about these things, I was reflecting on the fact that you, you know, being in a band and you live on a bus with someone you, and living on a bus with, with people for years, like seven, six, seven years, sure. you know, you see them every day, you see them in the studio, you see them on tour. And, and just thinking about like, that's, kind of, that's intimate. There's an intimacy right. to that. You know, you see someone waking up, you see someone going to sleep, you learn people's quirks and who they are. But Mark and I never really had a relationship outside of music. Mm -hmm. You know, just because of the dynamic of that band, which was incredibly negative, and so how come? Why was it negative? Because you were doing well. Uh, oh, because of ego and drugs, and you know, hmm. but pr pretty much ego. Okay. You know, um, and so you know, um, to be to have this time, like a, this frame of time with someone, and not to really know them, I thought was odd, and then. But when we would play on stage, it would, right. there was just something about it. No one could really, I didn't understand it, but it was just that way. And I thought, wow, it's kind of weird to have this, this connection through this music mm -hmm. and then outside not sort of have this full circle, um, you know, relationship. So I was doing this show in, in Woodstock, New York, and it was just over three days and it was recorded in front of a live audience, and I'd done one before, and it was cool, but I was like, man, I kind of want to bring some guests in, and I want to call Mark Ford and just see if he wants to come do this. And so we reached out to him, and his guy said, you know, he's like, I'm there, I don't care what it is, I'll, I'll come and play, you know. And that was really cool, you know. I mean, and that took, took an openness for him, too, you know, like, right. we build, I, I kind of feel like it's funny, I mean, I have young boys, and you can see, like, this kid will come up and be like, hey, you want to be friends? Like, yeah, all right. And that's pretty much it. And then they're just friends for a long time, you know. Mm -hmm. But as we get older, we start setting up boundaries, you know. And it's harder to have that connection, that sort of free flow connection with people because we have our own way of being things. So, right. uh, so it was interesting, you know, like, to drop all those boundaries and just be like, yeah, you know what, I'll come and, you know, cool. So he said he was going to come, and then I reached out to Eddie Harsh, and I'm like, you want to come down and play with me and Mark? He's like, yeah, I'm coming, you know. And we hadn't played with those guys in 10 years. I hadn't. Yeah. And so, 
you know, I thought it was really cool to bring them into what I was doing and into that context. And then I added some singers because I thought, oh, this would be fun. We can do a lot of stuff. You know, we could change, do these songs and that songs. And then, so that was really just, it was going to be those three shows and that was it, you know. Um, and then after the last show, Ed came up to me and was like, hey, man, this was amazing. You know, this was so much fun. I think we should do this again. We should really try. And I was like, yeah, that, that would be cool. Hmm. And then I went and finished my own tour, you know. And then... But I thought about what Eddie had said, and I thought of ways to put it together. Like, what would we call it? What would we do? What kind of songs would we do? Like, how would, how would this whole thing work, you know? You know, and we talked about putting a show up for sale in New York. And we put up a show, and it sold out, and three more sold out like that. And so I'm like, okay, well, there's something there. There's some interest there, you know? And then right after that, Ed passed away, you know? Mm, right. And, but his excitement and enthusiasm for everything just was more like, you know, Ed wouldn't, you know, he really wanted this thing to happen. So we just kept, you know, kept going. We did that, those shows. And then we're like, well, let's book a tour. This was fucking great, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we booked a tour. And then I was like, oh, we made that record last summer. Let's put that out, you know, mm -hmm. to tour on. It's just, it was more, that's what I like about it. It was organic. It was just like, let's, let's try this and let's try that. And that's how it's always been, it, creatively. Right. You know what I mean? Like, why not try something, you know? I have one question about this, and, and you might not like the question, but um, you don't have to answer it if you don't. But seeing that interest uh, for those shows, so seeing that interest, isn't it then, because you're playing with a lot of uh, old band members, isn't it a shame, in a way, that, that your brother... Um, that, that that rift exists between the two of you? Yeah, I mean, it's a shame for a lot of reasons, you know. Um, but, you know, people make their choices and it is what it is. I mean, yeah, it's a shame. Would I, ra would I rather have a good relationship with my brother and make music? Yeah, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Or I would have rather done that a few years ago. But now I'm happy to, happier doing this mm -hmm. um, because... You know, I think he brings a whole mess of things around. And, and with this, we are able to kind of say, like, the, you know, apart from the music, the most important thing for us is to not fall down that road. Right. You know, everyone in a band, bands are sensitive and they're, they can be bitchy and touring is hard. It can be boring. It's, people are exhausted. They're, you know... Every re, I mean, musicians or, or artists in general have a, a sensitivity to them. And so that being said, um, I think that that's a situation where having to go through the act of touring can be really difficult and mm. emotionally taxing and then therefore can lead to some sort of relationship turmoil, you know, mm. as a band. That being said, with this band, we were like, look, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to go in the back lounge of the bus and bitch about each other. And right. we're not going to talk shit. And we're not going to, you know, take things personally. You know, everyone's got a life. Everyone has families. Everyone has uh, things that they're dealing with. And you, we need to give everyone space to be who they are, first of all. And then secondly, we need to be able to communicate. And if you sense something is coming your way, talk about it, mm. you know. And, and so that, because we were all in the Black Crows, 
or most of us, and it was a, it's a tornado. Mm-hmm. And you just, you go into this tornado and you get spit out or, or you know, we were just kind of like trying to stay in the eye, but, you know. Right. But then uh, going back to Mark, because uh, you mentioned the chemistry you had in, on stage and, yeah. and then musically, and this is just one example, but there are many on the album, but hand in hand, the, the way the guitars kind of yeah. interlink. And, and so what is it like at that moment in the studio or as, as you're developing that song? Well, I mean, I, you know, I had that song. It was just this thing I was messing around with, whatever. Mm. And it's just one of those things, you know. It's like I had this cool thing. I'm like, yeah, what about this? You know, we're just developing songs in the studio. We recorded 28 songs because we wanted to make a double album. And so, or at least two records worth of stuff. And so it was just, you know, you plop a mic in between Mark and I. We're just up there and... You know, I show him the part and he comes up with his thing. And then I'm like, John, will you sing something? He's like, yeah. And he's sitting on the sofa with a mic and he's just, and that was it. It was one take. Okay. It's my favorite one. Yeah. And it just, it happens and that happened and it was cool. And John was just making up lyrics and I was (laughs) like, all right, cool, man. And that's, you know, Mark was approaching it more from like a lead belly standpoint of what Mm. he's doing over what I'm doing. But that's just what it is. It's like we drink from this well, you know, we pull, we pull from the same palate, but our approach is slightly different enough to where it works really well with one another. And know? I suppose ultimately that's why you are in a band. That's yeah. why you do make music. Exactly. Rich, thank you very much for your time. Yep, thank you.